the number one podcast that corporate tenants turn to in Seattle. Relocations, expansions, contractions, subleases, renewals, and redesigns are no problems when these champions are on your side. From the Orion Commercial Partners World Headquarters in Seattle, Washington, this is the Champions for Corporate Tenants podcast. Now welcoming your champions, your hosts, Gil White and Stephen Cougar. Okay, this episode will discuss tenant lease issues, and we're pleased to have with us Sandeep Soli, one of Seattle's more recognizable real estate attorneys. And on a personal note, I've witnessed him represent a client of mine in a lease transaction. Did a masterful job. Stephen, go ahead and make introductions. Sandeep, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. Sandeep Soli is an attorney with Cairn Cross and Hempelman. He heads the firm's real estate group, as well as the retail, hotel, and restaurant industry teams. He practices primarily in the area of commercial real estate transactions, including retail, office, and industrial leasing, purchase and sale agreements, and real estate financings. He represents technology, hospitality, and retail clients in these areas. Sandeep also brings a substantial commercial litigation background to his practice, including earnest money agreements, easements, and landlord-tenant disputes. Sandeep serves the outside real, as outside real estate counsel to a number of companies, including Microsoft, Nordstrom, Blue Nile, and Zulily. Sandeep, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right, well, let's start here then. So... As a broker, I'm working with a client, and we've exercised the market and have found a space that fits their business requirement. We've exchanged proposals, and we've all kind of agreed upon the general economic terms, and everyone's feeling excited, and then the lease shows up, and it's 60 pages, and the tenant has read it, and they feel as though that with one sneeze, um, they'll be in default, and the relationship goes south in the negotiations. So... Kind of get started. What is a lease? Why is it important? Well, I mean, a standard lease is there primarily for the protection of the landlord, and so that's why you'll probably see a, a landlord-friendly lease come to you, and that's most likely why you need representation to tweak the lease slightly in balance toward the tenant. And there are things that we can do to lighten the the extremeness of that lease. I mean, there's there's certain provisions that may or may not throw you into default that we can counsel you uh, as a tenant on. Uh, and more likely than not, we can put in cure provisions. So you actually get notice of an issue before you're thrown into default, time to cure, and a reasonable time to cure, that is. So as, as, as you're working with a client, how do you begin that lease review process in terms of helping them shape their expectations? Because, you know, quite clearly, and not every tenant knows that, um, you know, a 10,000-square-foot tenant in a 50,000-square-foot building carries a lot more weight than that 10,000-square-foot tenant in a million-square-foot building. So how do you help set their expectations on what they'll probably be able to, to, to get the landlord to move on um, and what the landlord won't move on. Yeah. 
Good question. Uh, it, it, it is all about leverage at the end of the day. Um, and, so, you know, some, whether you're a 10,000 square foot tenant or a 200,000 square foot tenant, there is there can be a big difference in what concessions you can get from a landlord. At the same time, there are certain 10,000 square foot tenants that landlords really want. And so you may be able to get more depending on um, how much leverage you can you can portray uh, in the lease negotiations. Uh, and, and to go on further, I mean, in, in to answer your question even further as to setting expectations, um, usually we'll, in our first discussion or initial discussion with the client, we will ask, you know, sort of what level of experience they've had in lease negotiations, what level of review are they expecting. If they have no experience whatsoever, we'll tell them what's typical for this type of lease, this type of requirement, and, and go from there. I'm curious because right now, you know, with my broker hat on, we're in a very tight market. In a lot of cases, I have clients competing against other tenants for the same space. And when you're in that type of environment, managing expectations becomes an art form because you know that your client, you know, might have their heart set on a particular space and it's your job to go out and get it. But at the same time, you want them to be protected uh, in the lease document and you know bearing that in mind uh, I'm curious um, you know considering that it's harder and harder to get concessions in this market as they're reviewing the lease document what types of things should they be minimally or what are the minimum things they should be focused on uh, in securing in the lease so that they're not exposed down the road I mean, you know, our first step in reviewing a lease on behalf of a tenant is to make sure it complies with the letter of intent that the brokers have negotiated. Um, you know, our second course of action, of course, is to be responsive and make sure that the deal doesn't go away or change while we're reviewing the documents. We definitely want to do that. But getting to your question on, you know, what are the concessions that, you know, we can try to achieve from the landlord that will protect the tenant, primarily we're probably focused on security. And if the landlord's asking, for example, for a personal guarantee, we'd, we'd like to push for some sort of cap on that, something that's reasonable, uh, making sure the personal guarantee burns off in three to five years or is capped at certain amounts that then burn off after that. Um, that's that's kind of where it, the rubber hits the road on the monetary aspect of the lease and where it could really affect one of our clients. In general, are you seeing a lot of concessions being made in the marketplace right now by landlords? Um, can, can that tenant feel pretty confident that uh, they can get a landlord to move on some stuff? And, and, and if not, um, what, what are some of the stuff that landlords just aren't moving on? You know, it's interesting uh, that you say that. I mean, I think I think we've got concessions that uh, are fairly standard that we that we receive from landlords. We're familiar with a lot of them. We're familiar with a lot of buildings, and so we can pull back uh, an older lease or a recent lease and pull those concessions and ask for the same concessions again from that same landlord. And so those are sort of standard concessions that we can get, whether it's having to do with common area charges or you know, operating costs or pass-throughs, that sort of thing, things that are really going to make a monetary impact perhaps on the tenant and just make sure that they're in line with what all the other tenants are getting. Um, regardless of whether you're a 10,000-square-foot tenant or 200,000-square-foot tenant, there are certain things that you should get as a tenant. Um, but uh, but there are certain things that you will not get if you don't have the leverage. And so uh, we are seeing a tighter market on some of those want-to-have 
kind of concessions versus the need to have concessions. Um, because the market is so tight, landlords don't have to spend as much time negotiating those concessions because they've got another tenant that's, that's willing to take the lease without without those. And so we have to be wary about that. We have to make up a list of, you know, these are things that they should be giving you, they give to everyone else. And then we need a list of, well, you can ask for these, but don't push too hard because you might lose the lease. It's actually very refreshing to hear you say that you're fighting just as hard for you know, the smaller tenant as you are the larger as it, as it relates to certain lease language, because I'm always here from landlord brokers. Well, they're not going to get that because they're only 2,000 feet, even though we offered it to the 10,000 footer. So like you, I believe that everybody should be treated equally, even though that's not always the case. Moving on to a different topic, I'm seeing that tenants are reaching deeper into their pockets for completing their tenant improvement projects. This is mostly a function of the marketplace and there being a little bit higher level of competition for, for space. And um, as a result, uh, tenants are focusing a lot more on their construction projects because they're watching every, every nickel and dime and trying to keep things in check. It seems that work letters seem to be growing commensurately as well. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago where work letters would be, you know, maybe one or two pages, and now they're five or six. And can you maybe explain why those work letters seem to be getting so much bulkier with legalese? And should a tenant be concerned about that? I think the issue probably is is driven by uh, the institutional landlord perhaps. Um, you know, they've got the asset managers have people looking over their shoulders to make sure that their asset is being um, properly looked after and any construction project within the tenant improvement is probably being done. And the landlord is not going to be a risk of, of liens if the tenant can't pay the contractor and the contractor ends up leaning the building and, and getting that money from the landlord. And so I think that's the primary concern, that risk um, of you know, a project, a tenant improvement project going over budget. And so I think that's why you're seeing the letter, uh, the work letters getting longer uh, because they want to control that process because they're afraid of it. I think in the past you've had more local landlords who are physically there to look at the, look at the projects, look at the progress, keep things on task. And in fact, a lot of them would be the managers on the project. But I think you're seeing less of that happening now. And therefore, rather than having the boots on the ground to actually watch a project and make sure it's on time and on budget, you're having this paperwork do that job in place of that person. I'm going to go back and touch kind of on the personal guarantee because uh, in a marketplace like this, landlords are demanding those where, you know, four or five years ago, they may have overlooked it a little bit. They just kind of wanted a warm body that could potentially pay rent. Now they, they've got competition on space. They're able to demand that. And it really tends to just kind of freak out a, a tenant in some ways when, when they know that they've got to do a personal guarantee and that if they don't pay rent, that their house could go away. How are you advising clients or how are you talking about this with clients um, that, uh, you, you know, it's perfectly right for the landlord to ask for it. There are ways to kind of maybe soften a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right, Gil. Unless you're an established company that's been in business for a number of years and and can give the landlord comfort that you've been around forever and you're going to be around forever, it's it's hard for a startup or a relatively new company to prove that. And so um, I've seen companies successfully get out of personal guarantees by putting up a very hefty security deposit. That's tough for people to do. That's a lot of cash to 
leaving the landlord's bank for the life of the lease. Um, and so that may not be an option for everyone. The other more practical way that we've seen landlords accept is to cap the guarantee either by a dollar amount that burns off over a number of years or or maybe at the end of three or five years, which is reasonable, to have it completely expire. And so those are kind of the more reasonable ways of dealing with the personal guarantee. And then lastly, um, regardless of what the lease says, the landlord always has a duty to mitigate. So for whatever reason, if a tenant's business fails or they have to move on to a smaller space or other space, or they just have to move out and break the lease, the landlord always has a duty to mitigate. And so that personal exposure is not as large as it may seem in writing. It's just refreshing to hear that even if everything goes sideways for a tenant, they still could potentially negotiate their way out or alleviate uh, you know, those trap doors that, that are associated with personal guarantees and things like that. I think moving on to a different topic, it would be helpful for the listeners to understand some of the nuances of real estate law versus, you know, for example, family practice law. Why would you recommend a tenant seek someone specialized in real estate law versus a family attorney, for example? Could you touch on that a little? Sure. I mean, I think it's important to have someone who knows the subject matter, obviously, um, from that can explain it and advise the client. Uh, based on experience and, and knowing how the terms in a lease or other real estate document works. It's also important to have an attorney that knows the market terms and knows what's fair, what's reasonable, what landlords are willing to accept as far as concessions, and know what's, knows what's fair to ask. Um, if you don't have that, then I think you lose a lot of credibility when you make the ask from the landlord and you're coming from left field. I mean, you really need to have someone who um, knows what's market, uh, ideally, who knows what the landlord has agreed to in the past um, and is someone that, you know, can bring credibility to your lease negotiations. Sandeep, one thing that I'm seeing tenants underestimate on almost every deal is the amount of time it takes to get the lease document negotiated. Could you speak to your experience and related to the current market that is busy and filled with professionals that have a lot on their plate. But what are you seeing? Is it taking two weeks, three weeks? Maybe touch on what's involved in that process because I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing it from an attorney how long this process takes. Sure. I mean, I think just as you as you see in the letter of intent process, how that goes back and forth, and you, you know, you'll have red lines of revisions to the letter of intent until it gets finalized. Same thing happens with the lease, but unfortunately, more intense because it's it could be 60, 80 pages, and so you've got a lot of back and forth between the tenants' representatives and attorneys and the landlords' representative attorneys, and people have to review all those 60 to 80 pages and all the red lines and the revisions, and then. Uh, agree on what they're going to accept and what they're going to reject and then go back and forth. Um, you know, that may go one or two rounds, maybe more. I've had several. But uh, if you can get everyone on the phone or in person for a meeting to hammer it out after the first few rounds, that would be very helpful to bring it to a close. But realistically speaking, we're talking two, three weeks, maybe even longer, you know, subject to the length of lease, right? Unfortunately, yes. And for some of the larger leases, 200,000 square foot, you're talking probably months. Sandeep, thanks so much for joining us. This is one of those topics that uh, could go on forever. Um, 
just as we see a 10-page lease or a 60-page lease. It could go on and on and on. But please know that we do want to bring you back and, and have you discuss developments in insurance in the lease, uh, specifically the interrelationship with damages and destruction, you know, more kind of a special focus on insurance regarding earthquakes and other natural disasters, especially in light of all the articles that have come out that uh, Seattle's due for the big earthquake. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Gil. Appreciate it. Well, in closing, I, uh, I'd, I'd like to say what I kind of take away from this is, number one, have a great qualified attorney like Sandy. He'll do a great job for you. Number two, I think it's important to really kind of budget time for this, that it does take time, not only for the, uh, for the principles that are involved, but sometimes maybe, uh, maybe, maybe authority has to come from back on the East Coast or somewhere else. It just takes time to get all the right parties involved. How about you, Stephen? What would you, would you take away from today? Well, it seems, you know, really apparent to me that it's just really valuable having a team, someone like Sandeep, that has a lot of credibility in the marketplace. You know, he understands the players. He understands what to ask for. He knows from past history what landlords have conceded on, and he knows how to hammer them uh, when they're, you know, perhaps not willing to, to give on certain items. So I think building the right team with someone like Sandeep that has a lot of credibility can really help your, your real estate transaction. Again, thank you everybody for listening. Um, Steven, cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Champion for Corporate Tenants podcast. The corporate real estate industry in Seattle is their domain. So you can be sure that they will be serving up valuable insights and topics in each and every episode of Champions for Corporate Tenants. You can also listen to previous episodes of this podcast at www.oriancp.com. Thanks for listening, Seattle.